0: Intentions. Hello and welcome back to the Fortune in Charge Novel Review. I'm author Matthew Glasgow. This is episode three and we remain in chapter one. In this segment, we see Kathy's parents falling in love, building a life together, having kids, and then the birth of Kathy herself. The segment begins with the continued motif of lost art, believing that some future artistic success will be a person's salvation. Kathy's mother, Jacqueline, uh, comes from a line of artistry herself, her mother being a skilled pianist, uh, which uh, she was then forced to learn as a child, and then Jacqueline uh, becoming involved in theater. Roderick Jr. sees her as a potential spark to fuel his creativity, and Jacqueline remains ambitious in her theatrical pursuits. However, as they start to have children, Cathy's older siblings, Daniel and Bridget, they lose the time for such ambitions. Roderick becomes like his father, acknowledging that he is of a more practical mindset. He begrudgingly accepts his fate in the furnace, steel mill, of distant saw works. Yet there is this vague torch he keeps in art, thinking that if he continues to do crossword puzzles each night, He will keep his mind stimulated and prepared for the day he is ready to write again. Jacqueline continues to practice piano over the years and stays involved in the theater. But as Kathy arrives, she has lost the time and energy for her art and seems resigned in being a mother. see Kathy as a child, first very sensitive, but then hardened after a traumatic experience that molds her to a tough young woman. Her art, in the traditional sense, never surfaces and uh, sees that she fully embraces a technical career path in being a mechanic. As a mechanic, she meets Al Mercer, a rough but handsome man who owns his own landscaping business. Together, they represent the rudimentary, but also artful in their love of the mechanism. They are machine, and the delicate, highbrow artistic endeavors of the human past are all but gone. It is practical, planned, fixing problems, and cutting overgrowth. Inspiration Although Kathy takes a significant step back from the narrative after this chapter, I was inspired to have her specter loom over much of the novel. Whereas not Exodate was very much male centric, I wanted to portray women as the primary influence in the story. Kathy at this point is very tough, fully capable and independent, yet she falls in love with a person who has a tougher background, but whom Kathy believes is a project she can take on. It is a hopefully portrayed it is hopefully portrayed in a realistic way. But Kathy falling for Al Mercer is Um, almost in line with a Greek tragedy. When Kathy meets Al, she feels invincible and sees Al almost like a broken car that needs fixing. He is forthright in revealing his abusive, addictive father and his mother who suffered a mental breakdown which eventually led to her suicide. As a person, he appears somewhat sly and arrogant, and yet Kathy twists these warning signs to work in her favor. The result will be where we meet her at the beginning of the novel, somewhat shocked that she is a mother at such a young age, and not quite doing what she anticipated doing in her life. The point isn't to disparage relationships or having kids, obviously, but the subtle tragedy of those red-hot, important aspirations of youth vanishing almost in an instant when a few decisions are made. Craft and Structure There's obviously an extended flashback in this chapter, and hopefully it is easy enough to follow. If not, however, uh, please stay with it. To start this novel, the goal wasn't to make it inaccessible, but to create this sense of uh, stepping fully into a realized world and having to adapt to its details. This world is that of Kathy Hume, the neighborhood of Tacony, and Philadelphia in general. Kathy and her family I viewed as being typical citizens, ones that most likely would be ignored. The neighborhood of Ciccone has the air of evaporated industry, particularly with the abandoned distant factory. Ghost town of sorts, the life and promise now removed. In my previous novel, and in this, the goal was for Arrested Motion. Seeing the abandoned factory, but also understanding its history and the people that inhabited it simultaneously. A ghost lingering in time and wondering how the world continued to move on once it was gone. The hope is that the world is understood by the end of the chapter. Kathy is our guide into this world. One of hardworking people, yet people that experience real emotions and are flawed. Some have the ability to move with the tide. Others are resisting and slowly drowning.
1: He took her for coffee once her shift was over, and a year later they were married and living on Chestnut Street in Spruce Park, where the bus would take Jacqueline home from Ticcone, with Roderick nervously with his hands in his pockets. Jacqueline, as that creature born to fallow dreams, inherited her mother's lost art, the spotlight that should have been on the stage of the great music halls rather than at Wanamakers, and her father's veneration for that talent, which he also knew must be passed down to the child. Cecilia started Jacqueline on Swaney and You Made Me Love You, and talked incessantly about those beautiful women who were appearing in the pictures, getting by not only without talent, but looks alone. Comely starlets like Marion Davies plucked off chorus lines in Manhattan by William Randolph Hurst to bat her eyes on screen and make puppy dog faces and let the cue cards do the talking. Cecilia would prattle and chain smoke about this dame or that dame who got the lucky break while Jacqueline pounded away on the rented ivory keys without end. Mother, a million miles away, but able to detect a note a millisecond off and barking for Jacqueline to play it again. Jacqueline got the knack for it, though at times she hated the damn thing. She played through high school at West Philadelphia High, and she was currently an assistant music director at the Walnut Street Theater downtown. Roderick was enchanting by her artistic talent, this expression that he lacked. Talking to her, he felt inferior, but superior in his drive for merit and artistry. Maybe she held the key for him. She could play all day for him and maybe even teach him a few songs. They could harmonize and rattle off heart and soul and croon away like two joyous octogenarians. Or she could play while he wrote or maybe painted, and they lived like bohemians in Satter City and he would never see another goddamn firm as her iron ingot again. His mind wandered with these possibilities, and he most likely looked stupefied to her as he nodded away, but he had this charm. He had this restlessness, but also a warmth. A man not happy with his situation, but willing to work hard and treat people kindly until the situation changed. She saw that in his awkward stance, sliding his hands in and out of his slacks, and fiddling with his collar while looking down the street to try and spot the bus. She couldn't, and he couldn't, take it any longer. And as the bus rounded the corner, she kissed him and wrote her number on the back of one of Bobs Barlow's business cards. A week later, they strolled along Kelly Drive, lost in the weeping cherry trees swaying in their winter white and pink limbs, and the steady trill of the Schuylkill River and rowers gliding by, passing granite sculptures of Florentine lions and a bronze-worn mask green statue of Ulysses S. Grant, somberly gazing into the distance while on a tired horse. They married on a day of torrential downpour in May. A year later, Jacqueline gave birth to Daniel. The pudgy little thing gave Jacqueline quite a scare within his first year, as he developed a rheumatic fever and remained in the hospital for a week. The dull fluorescent lights and worn yellow walls infiltrating her mind and making her forget how to breathe every time he coughed, or wheezed for nearly the next two years. He was happy and inquisitive once his illnesses seemed to be vanquished and he would scamper around the house on Keystone Street in his Roy Rogers cowboy boots and read his Peter Rabbit and Bugs Bunny books while Jacqueline played piano in the afternoon. And Roderick continued working at Diston. Every Sunday, Jacqueline's parents would come over for dinner after mass and Roderick and Grady would smoke cigars and play cards in the cellar. On Fridays, the couple would have a date night in the city, dinner and a theater production. Jacqueline knew the dream of being a starlet of her mother's dreams was dead to an extent, but the flame was never fully gone. She was too old to be the eye-catching dame or feature performer, but she could surely contribute to production on local plays. She helped to choreograph a production of An American in Paris for the Community Center in Rockledge. She was the musical director for Peter Pan at West Catholic High School And worked the spotlights for Twelfth Night. She read Edith Wharton novels in between theater jobs and idealized trips to Rome or Athens floating through the ruins of the greatest civilizations ever conceived. However, she had Daniel, and soon came Bridget, and Roderick seemed stuck in the furnace for the remainder of his life. It wasn't for lack of trying on Roderick's part in the beginning, but as the years trickled away, he had let any potential artistic drive vanish and he was resigned to just reading his books after supper or tinkering with a crossword puzzle. One evening, after finishing Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, he remarked, "'The Darls of the world cannot survive, "'and I would be among the folks "'who could not see eye to eye with them. "'There was a time when I may have understood a Darl, "'setting a barn on fire as some chaotic statement, "'but now I see it as just malicious, "'unjustified destruction of what a man built "'with his own sweat and stored the fruit of his sweat into.' He remained a good man, quieter and sterner as the years went on, deliberate and absolute, with no true interest in the profound or inquisitive, closer to the carpenter cache from the same novel, concerned only with measurement and mechanization. Jacqueline paraded Daniel and Bridget all over Tocconi. She dressed Daniel in little polo shirts and slacks and Bridget in frilly polka dot dresses and ballerina slippers, and took them along to the rehearsals for her latest play or musical. The years were passing gently, and in 1959, Kathy was born. She was ruddy and almost cooed when held during the day. Yet, she held endlessly as soon as she was placed in the crib and ran Jacqueline ragged. During the day, Jacqueline would sit at the piano while Kathy was in her playpen, and Daniel and Bridget were playing with their plastic cowboys and Indians, and Jacqueline would try to remember, I got rhythm, or swonderful. But her fingers were clunky, and her tired eyes could not keep with with the musical notation. Her mother-in-law would stop over daily, and they would chat for hours, changing diapers, hanging laundry, washing dishes, vacuuming, and cleaning up after the kids. Before she knew it, it was 4 p.m., and she needed to prepare dinner, and Roderick would be home, and she'd set out the dishes and silverware and wipe the kids up while Roderick showered, and they would eat, and Roderick would tell a joke he heard from a buddy at work, and he'd sit in a chair and read, or peruse the newspaper, telling himself he was training his brain for the next great writing pieces. But the ideas had evaporated, and soon it would be evening, and the children were put to bed, and Jacqueline and Roderick would kiss goodnight and occasionally make love. And as soon as they began to fall into a dream, Kathy would wail out. Kathy was a tough 18-year-old at Sesto's garage, long from those infantile tears that kept her parents awake and miserable. However, in elementary school, She developed the reputation of being sensitive and a tattletale. She idolized her big brother and sister, shadowing every move they made, and then telling mom and dad about it. She should have learned her lesson early, as Bridget and Daniel would pummel her with every squeal of Daniel said a swear, or Bridget won't share her doll with me. Still, the importance of secrecy did not start to resonate with her until she was in fourth grade, and she had a shadow of her own a doe-eyed, middle-aged, balding man in a green B-15 jacket, tailing behind her as she walked down Princeton Avenue. Holding the Rubino's prescription, she was asked to pick up for her sixth sister. The man, wheezing heavily, got closer and closer until finally he grabbed her by the arm and turned her around toward him. His teeth were yellow, and he smelled of stale cigar and gin. Kathy managed to wiggle free of his grasp as he asked her if she wanted to see his puppies and ran down the street. Thankfully, a police car was down the block, and she hugged the officer by the leg once he stepped out of the vehicle. The man, he's trying to get me. Arrest him, arrest him. The officer, middle aged as well, with a solid paunch, laughed and pried her from his leg. Bops wouldn't hurt a fly. The man in the green bomber jacket approached. I was just pulling your leg, honey. Don't get so upset. No, no, Kathy argued with tears running down her cheeks. Listen, this is a fine upstanding citizen, the officer chuckled. "'You don't want to be someone who tattles, especially when no one did anything wrong, right, honey?' "'No, sir,' and she walked away with her sister's medicine back home. From that day, the crying and telling were no more. She didn't tell when Daniel was smoking in the backyard with his pals when their parents were away, or Bridget had a boy over. She didn't tell when Bobby Shem slashed their high school history teacher, Mr. Harrison's tires, after he gave Shem an F on his term paper." nor when Tim Cavanaugh drunkenly filled her up after junior prom. So all of the time not crying and telling turned her tough. A tough mechanic broad who was one day repairing a Ford F-150 fan belt, and then the next day going on a date with his dreamy owner, Al Mercer. He was 22 years old and owned his own landscaping business, Mercer Lawn Care. More importantly, the landscaping made him muscular and sinewy, a lean 6'2 with a well-groomed mustache and silky brunette hair parted just above his cobalt eyes, and rolling wildly down to his neck. He smoked and seemed to always be smacking on a piece of gum, which she typically felt found repulsive, but with Al it was cool. Devil may care. Maybe he was a challenge to her, a stalling engine that just needed a few tweaks. Anyway, she was attracted to him immediately and figured the rest would fall in place in good time. He was sweet to her on the first date, holding the door and asking the right questions and staying smooth and at ease. Al asked about her family, and she pieced together what she could, though she knew it came out awkwardly from her nerves. How cruel that attraction can poison the tongue. She then asked him in return. I'm an American, Philly-born. My own parents were not much to me, though I cared for my mother. He chuckled and took a sip of beer. I never really knew my dad too much. Probably why I have a business with my name all over everything. Maybe he'll find me. My mom said he was a bastard, so I guess that's what he made. She said he'd beat her and get drunk and pick fights with anyone he saw. She said he was an infantry man in the war. I'm sure he saw his fair share. Anyway, he went to jail for aggravated assault when I was three. Stabbed some prick at a bar over a spilled drink. He'd come by maybe once every other year by the time I was about eight. But he kept getting arrested for petty theft or something along those lines. He might be locked up today for all I know. Lazy and mean. Ah, oh, man. Rotten. Rotten. Al took another sip. My mom was a real sweetheart, but she'd forget. She would call me by his name all the time. It was Jack. And she'd get all dressed up on Friday nights and just wait by the door. I think she thought he would come by to take her on a date. She wouldn't say a word, just sit there and hum, if only I had a heart. She started screwing up at work. She was a secretary for a law firm downtown. And she started forgetting her coworkers' names and then the boss's names, and then she would pick up the phone and just make up names, nonsensical names, and they fired her. But she didn't tell me she was fired. She would still dress up and take the L downtown every day. Then, when I was 13, they found her on the pavement of Front Street. They said she may have fallen off the edge somehow, but I know she jumped. Oh my God. So I had to live with my aunt and uncle until I was 18, and here I am today. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. It did scare her, but it drew her closer to him. He was a bona fide miracle to emerge from that childhood somewhat unscathed and a successful business owner. Al had his edges to him, but he was never properly molded. She wanted to be that sculptor for him, to show him love and tenderness and normalcy. Normalcy, that made her laugh to herself. She had always walked around with this chip on her shoulder, that her childhood was some nightmare because she had moments of unkindness and not an ideal mother and father. But they had this normalcy in comparison to Al. They lived in the same house on Keystone Street, and mother cooked every meal, and father never missed a day of work. And her parents had this light cloud of misery surrounding them, but they were hard-working people who had to make sacrifices. They had to give up some level of happiness to keep the house in order and to keep living. Kathy figured that's what most people had to do. Otherwise, you become a petty thief, or are nuts stuck in your own reality waiting for a relic of your past to stop on by and take you on a nice date. The gears needed to work properly, or they had to be replaced. She knew that, and she imagined Al knew it too. They had that machinery in common. They both woke up each day to manipulate the levers and hear the engine pumping. There was no distortion, no lost dreaming, in some distant art. He kept the blades of grass short and a healthy green. She kept the machine doing its job, and they would keep each other happy.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. Continue to follow on Instagram at MatthewGlascoAuthor. Also, make sure to visit Amazon for reading options of this novel and other novels by Matthew Glasgow. Please join me next time as we conclude Chapter 1 of Fortune in Charge.